Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather once again around your word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would minister your word to us. Um, We are absolutely dependent upon you. We have been created by you. The universe has been created by you, the heavens and the earth. And we continue to be dependent upon you. We have needs. Um, Those needs that we are aware of and even those needs that we're not aware of. We ask, Lord, that you would meet our needs according to your riches in Christ Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would meet our needs now that this particular passage that we're going to look at addresses. Um, We ask, Lord, that you would uh, help us to be able to focus our hearts and our minds upon you, to be able to set aside any distractions that we may have, that we might feed on your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're continuing in our series, uh, The Heart of Jesus, Uh, and today we are looking at the love of Jesus, the love of God as put forth in Romans chapter 5. So I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles, if you will. Oh, there's the title, He Loves. Okay, now Romans 5, if you will turn in your pew Bible to page 1039, 1039. Excuse me. Romans chapter 5, let's read through verses 6 through 10. Follow along if you will. For while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? I want to unpack the teaching here by looking at the labels, and then the logic, and then a few lessons. First of all, number one, the labels. The labels. This passage, this passage is about God, and it's about Jesus Christ, and it's also about us. For instance, in verse 8, where it says, But God proves his own love for us. So we're in this passage. And there are four words, besides the pronouns, there are four words here that are used to describe us in this passage. The first label is helpless. Helpless. Verse 6 says, For while we were still helpless at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. What does helpless mean here? This refers to our total lack, our total inability to do anything spiritually positive. Our complete lack of spiritual strength. Apart from Christ, we can do not one thing to please God, not one thing to please the Lord. We cannot contribute one iota to our salvation in the least. As sinners, we owe a tremendous debt to God, and we can't pay even one penny towards that multi-trillion dollar debt that we owe him because of our sins. That is what helpless means here. A second label is ungodly. 
ungodly. Verse 6 again, for while we were still helpless at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For the ungodly. Ungodly means anti-God. We, are, we were opposed to God. We were with determination opposed to God. We opposed his laws, his claim, his rule over us, his judgment against us, his very existence. We were unlike him. We were ungodly, ungodlike, but we were also opposed to him. That first label, helpless, means that we were unable to pay our debt. That second label, ungodly, means that we were unwilling to pay our debt. The third label is sinners. Verse 8, but God proves his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That label highlights our lives as completely out of step with God, as completely out of sync with his will and his law. Our behaviors, our attitudes, our habits, our motives, all of it were completely out of sync with God. Everything we did was sin. That was who we were by nature. Sin was, sinners are what we were by nature, and it got naturally expressed in everything we did. Even on those occasions when our behavior seemed to line up with God's will, it was completely and thoroughly tainted by sinful motives and tainted by a lack of reference to God and a lack of deference to God. Romans 14.23 teaches that anything that does not come from faith in God is sin. Anything that does not come from faith in God is sin. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. And someone say, but yeah, yeah, but you know, a stopped clock, a broken clock is right at least twice a day, right? But that's not true of sinners. That's not true of those who are outside of Christ. We were mired in sin. Sin was what we were. We walked in it. We swam in it. We were, we were cloaked in it. You know the joke about politicians? How can you tell if a politician is lying? Yeah, the lips are moving, right? That's, that's how you tell, right? Before Christ, a person outside of Christ, how can you tell when they're sinning? If they're breathing, they're sinning. There is no faith. There is no faith in God. Everything they do, even when they comply with the Ten Commandments, is, is not out of a reference of faith or confidence in God. The fourth label is enemies. Enemies. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God... In other words, we were not allies to God. We were enemies. Our official position was that we were against him. We would resist him and fight him. We were, we were hostile to him in many ways. And, and in, some of this way, in some of this way is simply just ignoring him. Helpless, ungodly, sinners, enemies. This is who, this is who Christ died for. This is who Jesus died for. The point is, the point is with these labels that there was nothing lovable about us. God didn't love us because of us. God didn't love us because of anything redeemable in us. God didn't love us because of anything that he saw in us, like he, he saw this uh, you know, little diamond in the rough type of thing or, or some kind of kernel that he could latch on. When I fell in love with my wife, there were two, it was a combination of things. I fell in love with my life, wife because I had a certain capacity to love, however miserable that capacity may be. 
but also because I saw qualities in her that were attractive to me. So it was that combination that caused me to fall in love with my wife. Not so with God. There's nothing, there's nothing good in us apart from Christ. There's nothing in us that would motivate him to love us. He loves simply because he is love. That is his heart. He loves because of his heart. We were thoroughly wicked and wretched and without even a single redeeming quality. He loved us because he has a heart of love. So let's now look at the logic of these verses. The logic of these verses. This passage falls into two separate logical arguments to convince us of God's love for us. The first argument is found in verses 6 through 8, and it references a past event, the crucifixion of Christ, to convince us of God's love for us. And that argument goes something like this, that Christ died for us when we were sinners is tremendous evidence of God's love for us. That Christ died for us at that time when we were sinners, when we were outside of Christ, is tremendous evidence of God's love for us. Look at verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. First of all, just think about that phrase, at the appointed moment. What does that mean? That means that this was planned. That means that Christ dying on the cross, that God sending his son in human flesh and living the life for us and then dying for us was not a spontaneous action. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't some kind of move that got, oh, I should do that. And then later, oh, man, I regret doing that. This was clear strategy, clear planning, clear scheduling on God's part. Now let's look at all, all three verses together, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's the difference there's a difference that highlights God's love. Sometimes someone might die for a good person, might sacrifice themselves for a decent person. But the difference is that Christ sacrifices himself for people who are wretched. Who gives their life in such a calculated way for people who hate them? Betray them, slander them, would love to see them wiped out of existence. Who gives his life for his enemy, for those who owe, owe him so much and yet all they get from them is grief? Who intentionally dies on behalf of sinners, on behalf of tax collectors, to use the, Old Test, uh, the, the New Testament uh, categories of sin there? Who intentionally dies for murderers, for adulterers, for thieves and hate mongers? Who intentionally dies for drug addicts? and drunkards, and death row inmates, for abusive parents and sex offenders, for kidnappers and sex enslavers. Jesus did. That's who dies for people like that. Jesus did. Back during the era of the Revolutionary War, when the Revolutionary War was going on, that was something that happened in our past. Okay, Recalling your history. There was a pastor during that time, lived in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. His name was Peter Miller. And he had an enemy. He had an antagonist, a man named Michael Whitman, who also lived in Ephrata. Uh, Michael Whitman had a hotel, uh, kept a hotel in, in Ephrata. Whitman was well known, Michael Whitman was well known for his hatred of Peter Miller and his hatred of the people of Peter Miller's church. On one occasion, he uh, actually slapped Miller in the face. On another occasion, he, he spit 
in Miller's face. And uh, such, such actions as this he committed on a, on a frequent basis, especially slandering him and so forth. Well, during the course of the war, Michael Whitman was arrested for treason. It wasn't quite the level of Benedict Arnold kind of stuff, um, but he was a little loose with his lips in, a, in, in declaring his love for, uh, uh, for the British. And uh, he did let it be known on, uh, on an inopportune occasion that he had offered his services to one of uh, the British's generals who was on our shores at that time. So anyway, Michael Whitman, the hotel keeper, the enemy of Pastor Miller, was arrested. He was tried, he was convicted, and he was sentenced to be death, uh, sentenced to be killed by, to be executed by hanging. When Pastor Miller heard about the death, or the death sentence, he got up early the next morning, he grabbed his cane, and he set out on foot um, from Ephrata, Pennsylvania, to Valley Forge, where he knew General Washington was, whom he knew, by the way, personally. He grabbed his cane, set out on foot, through the snow, 60 miles to go see uh, General Washington. By the way, Peter Miller was an impressive individual. Uh, he knew Thomas Jefferson, too, and Thomas Jefferson at, uh, had uh, Pastor Miller translate the Declaration of Independence into seven different languages to explain to the world what the American Revolution was all about. Anyway, so Pastor Miller makes this trip, this long trip to George Washington, to ask that Michael Whitman not be executed. Washington listened to Miller, but then stood by his judgment. He told Peter Miller that his plea for his friend could not be granted. And Miller responded, my friend? (laughs) He is not my friend. In fact, I don't have any enemy worse than Michael Whitman. To which Washington responded, what? You just walked all this distance to save the life of your enemy? That, in my judgment, puts the matter in a different light. I will grant you his pardon. So he got away with his life because of the intervention of Peter Miller. Now, he didn't escape completely. Uh, His property, Michael Whitman's, all of his property was confiscated and distributed to others. That was his punishment. But he got, Miller intervened for Whitman's life. The pardon was written, written and signed by George Washington. Miller took it and walked another 15 miles to Westchester, where the execution was to take place, and not too soon. When he arrived, Whitman was about to be, was being taken to the scaffold. Whitman spied Peter Miller walking up and said something about Miller walking all the way from Ephrata to see him hanged. Um, but then he was surprised when Miller delivered the, uh, the uh, pardon from Washington. What Miller did was noble and great, but it's just a shadow of what Christ did. It's just a shadow of what Jesus gave up. It's just a shadow of what Christ endured and suffered. Washington was duly impressed with Peter Miller's request, given his relationship with Michael Whitman. And the point of our passage is that we should be duly impressed with God's love for us, given our relationship to God before Christ. God's love is demonstrated in the death of Christ, particularly as his death occurred when we were sinners, when we were ungodly, when we were God's enemies. The action on the part of Christ demonstrates God's love for us. It proves it. It puts God's love on clear display. The second argument, then, is found in verses 9 through 10. 
And this argument serves to convince us of God's love for us now and on into eternity. And the argument goes something like this, that God so obviously loved us when we were his enemies means that God most certainly loves us now that we are his people. If he loved us then when we were his enemies and and ungodly sinners, he most certainly loves us now that we have been reconciled to him, that we have been brought into his family. Look at verse 9. Much more than since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. Here's the point. Christ died for you when you were an ungodly, wicked enemy of his. When he died for you then, you were justified. You were declared righteous in his sight. And now that you are justified and declared righteous in his sight, he will surely complete your salvation. He'll stick with you all the way, and you will not endure his wrath against your sins at the judgment. If he began your salvation when you were in rebellion against him, it doesn't make any sense to think that now he will love you any less now that you are in alignment with him through faith. If he loved you when you were on your own in sinfulness, he most certainly loves you now when you are cloaked in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 10 restates the argument in a different way. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, now that we are reconciled, will we be saved by his life? When you were God's hostile enemy, he loved you and sacrificed his son for you, and that brought you into God's family. You're a child of God. How much more, now that you're a child of God, will he continue with you all the way into glory? If he worked so hard to save you when you hated him, rejected him, ignored him, rebelled against him, there's no reason to think that he won't follow through on your salvation now that you love him. God loved us when we were outside the family. He most certainly loves us now that we are inside his family, that we are part of his family. He loved us when we were hostile to him. He loves us now that we love him. However, imperfectly, that love sometimes gets expressed towards him. So those are the labels and the logic. Let's look then at uh, two lessons real quick. Okay, maybe not real quick, but let's look at two lessons. The first lesson is this. Apart from Christ, you are a great sinner. Apart from Christ, you are a great sinner. Recall those labels those are true of all those labels are true of all who are not in relationship with Jesus Christ all who are not actively trusting in Jesus Christ helpless that is spiritually inept spiritually incapable ungodly against god against his will against his law in rebellion against him and happily so sinner completely out of step with god breaking lots of the rules And the rules that are kept are kept out of a sense of self-preservation. They are not kept from the heart. Every parent in this room knows the difference between a child's joyful obedience and a child's grudging obedience. Apologist, Christian apologist by the name of Clay Jones often raises the question, why do gangbangers stop at red lights? That's That's the way he words it. Why do gangbangers stop at red lights? And he he says it's not because they respect the law. Clearly they don't. It's rather because they don't want to get hit by a semi. They comply with the law out of a sense of self-preservation, not because they have some kind of inward respect for the law. 
They don't do it out of sense of moral goodness. So sometimes those who don't trust Christ will do what is right. But never because of their love for the Lord. They serve another God, and it's usually themselves. And then that final label, enemies, hostile to God, hostile to his claims on them, disbelieving all he says, thinking him to be a liar, not taking anything he says seriously. Apart from Christ, you are a great sinner. The fact that Jesus had to suffer and die in order for you to be saved indicates the depths of your sinfulness. If God could have solved our sinful, our sin problem in a lesser manner than sacrificing his own son, he would have done so. He would have done so. You need Jesus Christ. You need Jesus Christ. He died for you for your sins. Salvation has been bought and paid for you, so to speak. You access it. You access it. You receive it by trusting in Christ, by following him. John 1.12 Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Romans 10.13 Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, exercising that faith. Colossians uh, 1 puts it a little differently. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. But look here, if you continue in what? In your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. So that's the first lesson. Apart from Christ, you are a great sinner. But in Christ, in Christ, all of that is taken care of. God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The second lesson is this. The love of God blasts through several roadblocks to your salvation. The love of God removes several roadblocks to your salvation. One roadblock is your inability. One roadblock is your inability. You can't save yourself. You can't pay off your sin debt. You can't contribute one red cent to your sin debt. But it doesn't matter. God loved you so much that he has provided salvation for you, that he saved you. He sent his son to die for you. The heart of Christ is love for you so that he came out of his love for you and provided salvation for you at great cost to him. Another roadblock is your history of sin. Your history of sin. In other words, the extent of your sinfulness. During the course of your lifetime, you have sinned countless times. Not only in actions, but also in your speech, in your thoughts, in all your bad motives, in your attitudes. Not only in the things that you've done, but in the things that you haven't done that you should have done. Not only, the, not only in the bad attitudes that you had, but also in the, in the positive attitudes that you were supposed to have and didn't have. The last verse of the Gospel of John, uh, talking, John is talking about all the, all the great things that Christ did. And this is how he ends the Gospel of John. He says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. I was thinking about that verse, and I was thinking, that verse could probably be written about me in a different way. Uh, something like this. 
Uh, Kent committed many other sins as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that could be written. We are very sinful. We're shot through with sin. But God blasts, God's love blasts through that roadblock too. No matter how massive your sin tally is, God's love is bigger. He sent his son to die for you, for all of your sins. And not only for yours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, <coughs> excuse me, in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul's saying two things, at least two things here in this passage. First of all, he's saying he's, he's articulating the mission of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Sinners, those who are out of sync, those who are rebellious against God, those who are anti-God. He came into the world to save sinners. That's his mission. It's articulated in a different way in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek that which was lost. The second thing that Paul is saying here is that he says, of whom I am the worst. He came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul is pointing out that before he came to Christ, he was a bad dude. He was a bad he was a bad, and we look at Paul and think, he's a Pharisee. He was fairly decent. Paul says, no, I was, I was sinful to the core. And why did Jesus pick me to be the apostle, uh, to be one of his uh, apostles? He picked me because I was so bad to demonstrate to everyone how great is the mercy of Christ. Christ wasn't just looking for halfway decent people. Christ was looking for the very worst. Paul said, look at me. I was one of the worst. And that's not on me, that's on, that's on Christ. That, that shows the mercy of Christ. Shows the mercy of Christ. So your history of sin, another roadblock is your really big sins. Your really big sins. You might think that there's a certain sin in your life that there's no way God could forgive you of. God could forgive you of this sin and that sin and that sin and all these other sins, but there's that one thing that's just huge. It's just huge. And, there's no, and you think to yourself, there's no way God could forgive me of that sin. There's no way that God could forgive me of that. And that's, that's the lie of the devil. <laughs> that's the devil whispering in your ear and telling you that. Because that's not what scripture indicates. God's love isn't based on anything in us. It's not that there's anything that motiv- in us that motivates God to love us. It's because of the heart of God. Because there is nothing redeemable in us apart from Christ. We were completely immersed in sin. Isaiah 64, uh, 6, I think it is. All our, all our righteousness was as filthy, soiled clothes, as filthy, soiled garments in God's eyes. We were completely immersed in sin. Nothing praiseworthy or even remotely attractive to us, to a holy God. God's love isn't based on you. It's entirely based on the fact that he is love. And so he loves you. His heart is filled with love. And because of his love, he planned to rescue us from our sins, from all our sins. His son died to atone for your sins, all of them. Think of the examples in scripture. Peter denied Jesus three times on the night he was betrayed. 
denied him three times. And and this happened just hours after Jesus had said to him, you're going to deny me three times before the morning, before the rooster crows. You're going to deny me three times. Peter says, no, no, no. And just a few hours later, what does Peter do? He denies him three times. Did Jesus forgive him? Yes. He forgave him for that sin against light, if you will. And then think about Jesus on the cross. All right. He's been scourged in a horrible way. He's on the cross. He has he has nails uh, through his uh, wrists. His, his feet have been overlapped. But a spike has gone through his feet into the vertical beam. His 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 wounded back is up against the the wooden cross, the rough wooden cross. He's suffering physically. He's suffering spiritually. And he looks down at the Roman soldiers who did all this. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. We find in the Bible different instances where God forgave murderers in the Bible. We find in the Bible different instances where God forgave a variety of sexual sins. Just to name a few of the sins that that are specifically mentioned as being forgiven. Um, in the Bible. Your great sins might be really big to you, but God's love is far, far bigger. And that's clearly demonstrated in the sacrifice of his son. And then one other roadblock we'll mention is your sins as a Christian. Your sins as a Christian. It's extremely tempting to think that, to some, that now that you're a Christian, because you repeatedly give in to a particular temptation, God isn't as inclined to forgive you. You should know better now, right? You should know better. So the fact that you sin now as a Christian, that you're sinning against light, these are, uh, you know, that God isn't as inclined to forgive you. The truth is that Christians still struggle with sin. Pastors struggle with sin. Missionaries struggle with sin. Deacons struggle with sin. So do deaconesses. So do pastors' wives. So do Sunday school teachers and saintly prayer warriors. Every Christian struggles with sin. The book of John, the book of First John, highlights the importance of walking as Jesus did, of, of, of walking in holiness, of walking in obedience, of striving to obey the Lord. But the book of First John also highlights the reality that believers are going to struggle with sin. That believers are going to struggle with sin. God's love for his people is fierce, and the cross of Christ covers all of our sins from the womb to conversion all the way to either when we pass from this life or Christ comes back. All of those sins are covered. The whole point of verses 9 and 10 is that as mighty as God's love was for you, what, as mighty as his love for you was before you became a Christian, it's even greater now if that's even possible. He took pains to free you from your sins before you became a Christian, and there's no way he's going to give up on you now that you are a Christian. As the book, Gentle and Lowly, puts it, he eagerly suffered for us when we were failing as orphans. Will he cross his arms over our failures now that we are his adopted children? Not a chance. Not a chance. So I want to close with two last items, and they are intentionally brief. Uh, We could spend a lot of time on these two items, but... I'll just mention them and make a couple comments about each one. First one is this. The fact that God loves us so greatly is not a license to sin. The fact that God loves us so greatly is not a license to sin. Some have been tempted to think 
And Paul dealt with this even in Romans. Some have been tempted to think that since God loves us and forgives us all our sins in Christ, there's no need to be careful about sin. But that's not true. As much as the Bible reminds us of God's love and available forgiveness, it also exhorts us to live holy lives, to confess sin, to pray against sin, to walk in repentance. I'll just show you one short passage, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. There's the urge, the, the, the command, the exhortation to strive against sin. And certainly we could multiply this verse from all over the Bible. But notice, if anyone does sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, who is the same one who died for our sins in the first place. And then the second, uh, second note, letter B, we've already alluded to this. Salvation is only yours through faith. Salvation is only yours through faith. Out of his great love for you, God sent his son to die for your sins. Out of his great love for you, Christ came willingly to die for your sins. He has provided to you the opportunity to be saved. Christ extends to you the gift of salvation, which came at great cost to him. But you have to take the gift. You have to receive the gift. You must place your faith in Jesus Christ. You must trust in him. And there is nothing superficial about this faith. It's not like, you know, you pray a prayer and then go ahead and live your life your own way. That's not what faith is. Um, it is not, this saving faith is not simply the act of a moment. It's the attitude of a life. It's the attitude of a life. It's a decision made in a moment, but it is something that should characterize your life. If you do not trust in Jesus Christ, God loves you. He has provided salvation for you. But if you do not trust in Christ, it's like rejecting the gift. And God will accept that rejection. He will not force it on you. If you do not trust in Christ, you are not saved. Uh, John 3.36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life, referring to eternal life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God does not need to remain on you, but it does if you do not receive the gift of eternal life. 1 John 5.11-12, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. The one who has the son has eternal life. The one who doesn't have the son of God does not have life. So the question is, do you have the son of God? Are you believing on Jesus Christ? So we've learned just to wrapping up. We've learned a lot of things about the heart of Jesus over the last several weeks. He cares. He understands. He persists. He intercedes, he connects, he comforts, he's faithful, he forgives, and today he loves. Let's pray. Father, we we praise you for your tremendous love for us. And the love that comes in rescues us from our sins and indeed is transforming us and purifying us and beautifying us and glorifying us so that one day... Um, We will not only be saved from the penalty of our sin, but we will be saved from the power of sin altogether. And we will be transformed by your spirit into the very image of Christ to be just like 
Christ in terms of his character and so forth. Um, And we have a great inheritance because of what you've done for us. Uh, We praise you for that love for us. Help us to walk in that love, to thrill in that love, to, to, to have great joy and peace because of that transcendent love that will walk us into heaven. And I do pray, Lord, that if there's anyone in this room who has not received the gift of salvation, who is not yet trusting in you, that they would do so, and very soon. We give you praise. We praise you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.